Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about uh, Greece and Turkey and the bad position they've been put in due to the Russo-Ukrainian war. We're going to talk about Indian industrialization and abortion in America. All that and more, coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So we have Italy and India now in an industrial collaboration agreement. We'll talk more about India later on, but that's why I'm going to open out the rapid-fire segment. Uh, we have a hotel explosion, which has rocked the Cuban capital city of Havana. Uh, I believe two were dead and eight more were wounded. Those are the numbers I saw as I gathered the news. It could be potentially higher now as they've sifted through the rubble. Uh, my best regards to the people in that explosion. Horrifying thing to happen. Definitely not something you expect to happen in your country's capital. Was it deliberate or was it an accident? Only time will tell. If it was deliberate, there will be some major issues that come from that. But... For now, it's most likely something accidental. Although, these days you have to leave open the possibility for anything to happen. So, explosion in Cuba. Uh, in Africa, though, there's been 11 Burkina Faso soldiers who've been killed in recent skirmishes with Islamist militants as the Second Great African War continues. Uh, and again... I brought this up in the last episode when we were talking about the pipeline that was supposed to, that eventually will run from Morocco to Nigeria across the Sahel and the Sahara. And my biggest thing was, how are you going to get this pipeline done if you have a whole war zone to get through? Because like, it has to go through the war zone in order for it to get to Nigeria, otherwise you'd have to go around it, in which case... You're talking more countries than you'd need. And I'm pretty sure getting Algeria to go along with this pipeline was already already hard enough to do when Morocco and Algeria cut off diplomatic ties. So that, that was probably enough of a hurdle as was. So now you're talking going through that and then a number of other countries versus going through that and going through a war zone. And, well... You know, I, I guess this is the best option because if you go around the war zone, you go into the jungles. Because once once you go like south of Burkina Faso, I believe, you have that, that that's where the deserts and the savannas stop, and that's where the jungles in that type of terrain begins in Africa, and it's sort of like almost a straight line running from the southern parts of Mali. And Nigeria, going all the way up, well not up, but all the way across the continent of Africa, and it goes straight from desert to a little bit of savanna, and then it goes to jungle. So I can only imagine that building a pipeline through a jungle would be 
probably harder, which is why they've opted for the straight path, going th even though it goes through a war zone. But that's going to mean that the war is going to intensify as this pipeline gets built. Because you got to keep... You, one, you have to clear the path for it to be built in the first place. And the economies are going to be dependent on this, and there's major incentive to go along with it. Especially since it's going to connect to Europe. Europe that is starving for gas right now. But you're also going to see it, it, get, it's, it has to be protected once it's built. Because it being built doesn't stop the war. So now you're talking the military expansion of numerous countries, namely Nigeria. Because they're, they're the biggest player here. They've been absent from this war in uh, sort of a, an unhappy participant, an unhappy victim, I should say, of it having hundreds of their people kidnapped and killed on their northern border. But in order to get this pipeline done, they have to pitch in because everyone else around them is already involved in the, in the fighting. So in order for this to get built, Nigeria has to step in. Nigeria has to step up to bat. And that's going to mean an expansion of Nigerian power in the region. Maybe its neighbors aren't going to like that, but that's what's going to happen. And they're probably going to have an easier time doing it, considering that the power bases for these uh, Islamist militants are very close to Nigeria's borders, making it easy for them to project power just that little bit beyond home to set up the secure line for this pipeline to go through. And then once the pipeline's built, it's it originates in Nigeria. So you're talking getting gas from Nigeria, going up through Morocco, going into Europe. That makes Nigeria a, a on a very minor scale, it makes Nigeria a world player. So on top of becoming a regional military power, you're talking about a very low tier level of world economic power. We could be witnessing the rise of Nigeria as a great power in and of itself. I said that there were going to be opportunities for African nations who were able to take them in the new scramble for Africa. But, but, uh, there, are, there are many pipelines going that are going to be built in Africa to supply, namely Europe, with gas. Because there's lots of gas in Africa to have. But to those in Africa... A warning from a little isolationist in America. Be wary. Because oh, when you have this gas. And you have this dependency. By Europe on African nations. For their economies. Well. You're going to have countries. Who th may or may not come to the conclusion. As is becoming increasingly popular. You know. With the gas situation in Europe now, you know, there will be countries who come to the conclusion they need to take their energy policy into their own hands. And I'm, I don't think I need to remind Africa what happened to them the last time the Europeans were enthralled with the resources that the continent had and what those resources could do for the economies of Europe. Now, the power dynamics are different this time around, but those can change. And while Nigeria might be able to defend itself in a competent as a competent regional power in the in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, will say Libya be able to do the same?
But they had gas in Libya. Will, say, Burkina Faso and Mali and Niger be able to do the same? Perhaps not. Well, Mor Morocco and Algeria could probably defend themselves. They're heavily militarized. But what if, what if they get into a conflict with one another and get weaker? Well, now you're looking at Spain and France. What happens if the Belt and Road is not as friendly in the future as it is now? And you start getting Chinese influences. There's major wealth extraction, primarily through resources going on through Africa. And it's the greatest blessing that the African have, not the African, that the Africans have. But it's also, if they're not careful, it can also be a curse like it was in the past. But Nigeria seems to be one of the few countries, and kind of an easy pick, they appear to be one of the few countries who will probably survive the scramble. It's very, very early on, the, the new scramble for Africa. But Nigeria is looking like they're on the right path to not getting colonized. And with Congo joining the eventual East African Federation, right now it's just the East African community, uh, you could, that could also be another block that stays independent in the midst of all this coming chaos because of the coming scramble for resources as countries try to re-industrialize you know western nations that sold out their industrial bases and are now trying to re-industrialize which means they have to get access to the resources that they need that they weren't using because they didn't have the industries that needed them like china does well that means you're gonna have to interface with the countries that have the resources and while lots of countries have copper and nickel and aluminum and various European countries can produce the steel themselves. What about nickel? Oh, not nickel. What about cobalt? What about what about rare earth? Oh, the Russians are going to have that. So, what about what about resources like that? You know, things that are a bigger issue with regards to processing, like in the case of rare earth, and resources that you just don't have, and like in the case of cobalt. Or, what do you do then? Well, you need to interface with the countries that either have those resources or are highly capable of refining those resources and already have the existing supply chains to do that. That's going to mean Africa for a whole lot of those resources, especially considering you're, if you are willing to invest the time for a railroad or two, you can extract those resources using cheap, lab cheap local labor and then the cost per unit of those resources are lower than they would be if you bought them from say a supplier in Russia or the United States or Brazil. Africa is going to be a very economical destination to be. It'll be the best and worst of times. And if they're not careful, it'll be more on the worst side, but if they're smart, like or if they're just pushed in the right direction by circumstance like Nigeria is, it could be the best of times. And Africa's becoming very interesting. Very, very interesting. But uh, only time will tell. And that's, that's the thing about time. It takes its time. Ah, ah, ah. But anyway, I've gone on a whole tangent about Africa. You have this Ukrainian president, Zelensky, who is currently set to meet with G7 leaders in an online summit. Uh, there's the Russian foreign ministry saying that Russia will not use nukes in Ukraine, which 
I could have told you that. You have China's leader, Xi Jinping, standing by the zero COVID policy in Shanghai, reportedly saying that the country's policies will stand the test of time. You also have Transnistrian officials claiming that there have been skirmishes on the border with Ukraine. We'll keep our eyes on that one because it could expand the war. And then there's the U.S. resuming small-scale visa processing in Cuba. And, ah, finally, a foreign policy move that actually made, that actually means something to America. And none of this stand-up to Putin and stand-up to China stuff actually means anything to America. If, if we pretended Putin and Xi Jinping didn't exist, and Ukraine and Taiwan got annexed, uh, Americans, what would, what would that mean for America? It would mean nothing. Oh no, the cost of this went up a little bit. That's it. There's no existential threat to the United States. If those two entities got annexed, like they're going to be, or if NATO ceased to exist, and there was a major European war, there'd be disruptions in the U.S. economy, but it, it's not an existential threat. It just really isn't. Now, unfortunately, not many of my fellow Americans see it that way. Everyone wants to defend someone, uh, but I want to defend us. So there's the, there's the, uh, how I say, the disconnect. But, um, yeah, if something happened to those countries, nothing would happen to us. But if something happens to Cuba, that's an immediate threat to the United States, because Cuba's right there. So this move, in my opinion, my not-so-humble opinion, I should say. It, it means a, a hell of a lot more than what's happening in Ukraine to the United States specifically. And that's the focus here on this podcast. But uh, finally, something good. Uh, and now, once we hop into the meat, we'll talk about the things that aren't so good. But we'll get to that in just a moment. Alright, now we're going to get into the meat of today's episode. And we'll start with Turkey. I said some not so not uh not so nice not so happy things were gonna happen on this part of this section, but what else is new these days? Uh, you you take the good with the bad, but for Turkey it's looking pretty bad. Uh, there have been stories in the past about Turkey's inflation, but I saw some numbers while I was going through the news for today's episode, and it just I was just wow that's bad, that's really really bad. Uh, Turkey has seen seventy percent inflation since last year and i'll just say that on a, on a side note i'm pretty sure america's uh america's inflation is probably gonna you know when they stop hiding the numbers from us i'm, I'm pretty sure that the number is gonna be equal to or worse than that when we get around to the honest conversation about our inflation because we keep printing money but turkey's seen 70 percent inflation since last year and that's pretty big Turkey, from what I can see here, based on the things that have risen in cost, it seems that Turkey's eating the cost of the Ukraine war more than most other countries. Like, food and drink prices have gone up 89.1%. Transportation costs have risen 105.9%. And the transportation costs are mainly due to the rising cost of oil because the per barrel oil is way above a hundred dollars right now and you add to that the turkish lira 
is still falling in its value. So not only do they have inflation due to, you know, bad monetary policy, but you also have the war, which has just caused natural surges in prices because you're dependent on these two countries for the things that you're no longer getting because of the war. So you have the natural inflation, which is from, you know, supply-demand dynamics, on top of the monetary inflation from printing, printing money out of thin air. Turkey's in a very rough spot. Very rough spot. Um, about as rough a spot as most politicians in the U.S. want us to believe that America has been put in by the war. But when you break down the things that are rising in cost here... And the fact that we're an oil-producing nation, well, then the fuel prices don't make sense for Putin's price hikes and whatnot. We can produce oil and bring the cost down, but we keep getting rid of the leases on federal lands. The the, the drills are still there, all right? All those drills are still there, but uh, then you have food prices in America. America is a breadbasket. There's no reason we should have rising food prices. There's just, there really is, the things that are rising in prices in America have no reason to be rising were it not for the constant devaluation of our currency and bad economic policy on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. Putin's war in Ukraine means nothing to the American economy. It's America's management of its own economy. That's the problem. That's just the way it is. It's a good thing and it's a terrible thing. It's a good thing because... We don't have to be in a bad position right now. It's a bad thing because we are, and that means we have people who don't know what they're doing in charge of our government. Uh, but I'll also add that in reading, I was watching uh, people talk about the Turkish monetary policy being radical and, you know, unorthodox and things like that. But it's the same. It, it's it's the same as what's going on in basically every other Western country. And it, it popped in my mind that, oh, they're preemptively running defense of the banking system. They're, they're preemptively slandering the Turkish monetary policy as unorthodox and uh, not the correct way. And, you know, it's, it's so different from ours that they're preemptively doing that. So that when we inevitably end up in a similar situation, because our policies are basically identical to what Turkey's doing, they, they copied us. But they're, I guess it just crashed their economy faster because they don't have the petrodollar. Uh, we'll see if this pushes them to a gold-backed currency or whatnot. But they, for whatever reason, they've come down faster. And you have all these, these experts, you know how I feel about them talking about how different their monetary policy is, but it's the same. So you have this preemptive defense of the banking system uh, where you have specifically the fiat currency part of the banking system and the whole just print more money and, you know, go have the government do more so that you have higher artificial demand and, you know, the the Keynesian style. The Keynesian style economics uh, and various branches of that general thesis of economics it's the same but you have the defense coming in because eventually and probably sooner than later we're going to end up in similar situations turkey 
and they want to already have it out there that hey they were doing something different what happened to us is uh, it, it's it's not gonna happen to us it's, or uh, but before it happened they'll be like that that's not gonna happen to us because they're doing it way different here's how we do it and then when it does happen to us they'll try to throw you off from the scent by saying see what they were doing was way way different here's what we were doing here's the problem over here, and it'll be completely unrelated to what was happening, uh, and then they'll advocate doing the exact same thing, but more of it on a bigger scale, because that's what always happens when this type of system crashes. You, well, if the government just did more, if we just went further into debt with the deficit spend, we could avoid the recession, but the recession never gets avoided. We're going to have that happen. And the you you can already see it. You can when you're able to you know see through the lies and the propaganda, and part of that comes with knowing well what what people say. Part of that comes with knowing what people say when they're you know lying about something like this or what propaganda point because there are specific talking points. There are specific talking points that you can look for. To identify, oh, this person has, in, in, like, it's like that. You can go, because there are certain words like climate crisis. Oh, he believes in this, 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 and this. He doesn't like oil, na natural gas, and whatnot. He doesn't like nuclear. Like, j just off of those couple words, you can distinguish them like that. And I, I'm sorry to beat up on the green energy crowd like that, but it, it, it's just stuff like that, you know? And... I guess I've gotten good at noticing it, uh, but uh, I'm pretty sure you're as aware as I am that bankers like, love to lie just as much as the government that they pay. But this is what they're doing. They're running the preemptive defense of their own system so that when the crash comes here, they can, you know, justify keeping things exactly the way they are so that they don't get, you know, ousted or abolished like they should be. <laughs> but uh, I think they should be abolished. Yeah. But well, that's what's happening. And they want to get ahead of it so that people don't come to the logical, you know, conclusion. Like, you know, we were doing basically the same as what they were doing. Why didn't we change it up when we saw this happen to Turkey? Why didn't we change strategy when this happened to Turkey? Because it's the same thing. It's like, no, 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 it's not the same thing. I'm so over it. But <laughs> we're gonna. Uh, but Greece is also in a pretty bad situation, too. Uh, again, about as bad as people want us to believe America is in because of the war. Except Greece is actually in this bad way because of the war. Because, uh, and I'll just get into the story here and explain, you know, my thoughts on it in a minute. The Greek Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsudakis, has promised government aid to assist families and help them pay for the rising electricity bills. This aid would partially be funded by a 90% gains tax on electricity producers. And gee, with taxes like those, I wouldn't be surprised if Greece traded rising electricity costs for rolling blackouts. But um, that's probably something to come later on down the line, especially if they can't get more gas. Um, and by winter, um, that's a problem. Hello, Europe. But we'll, 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 that's that's the time bomb. That's the that's the big time bomb we're looking at here. I can't. I can already see the immense amount of pressure that's being put on governments in Africa to get these pipelines done, you know, 
because uh, Europe is on the clock. But you have the increase in prices that came, just like Turkey, primarily due to the rising price of oil and natural gas. So here, too, Greece has been hit significantly hard by the war in Ukraine, even though they're not a participant. Like, of all the NATO countries, Greece has been one of the one of the countries to be the least enthusiastic, least openly enthusiastic about getting involved. Like, uh, they want European solidarity, they want Europe to have their back and whatnot, but they've been pretty quiet on the Ukraine war issue. And that's probably, you know, due to orthodox sympathies between them and Ukraine as well as them and Russia. But they, they haven't been as gung-ho about, yes, let's expand it, yes, Russia has no legitimate security concerns in their own back, yes, this is what we need, yes, we're gonna give all this aid, we stand with you. They haven't been quite as fervent as a lot of other NATO countries, or at the very least NATO leaders, have been with regards to the war. So that that's just been an interesting thing to uh, take note of, and that'll probably get them an energy deal when the thing's over. Uh, but, again, they've been hit hard by the war, even though they haven't been so enthusiastic to get a part of it, they haven't, they haven't, I'm pretty sure they've played an even smaller role in the war than Turkey has, because Turkey's been giving drones to the Ukrainians. Uh, now, they were doing that before Russia joined the war, so it, it to be, to be completely fair to them, but they've been hit hard, and, but, if you'll notice, what do Greece and Turkey have in common? Neither of them are major energy-producing countries. They do not produce enough energy to meet their demands. And so prices in their countries are rising, specifically gas prices. But Russia, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Iraq, and Iran, and the United States just uh, about a, a year ago, those countries do meet their demands they do produce enough uh, to meet their demands and even to export oil and guess who doesn't have issues paying for energy costs guess who doesn't have these radically rising costs at the pump oh it's the oil producing countries like america was like america could easily be again in a matter of months you don't see $8 a barrel in Russia, or Saudi Arabia, or Venezuela, or Iraq, or Iran. You, you don't see it there. So how is it that America, an oil-producing country, who just a couple years ago met and surpassed its energy demands and had $2 a, a gallon at the pump? How do we have almost $5 now? How, how do we get to this point? because we are strangling our energy production ourselves. Countries that produce oil are not affected negatively by rising costs of of per barrel oil. They're just, they're affected positively by that. We should be seeing a boost to the economy from the rising cost of oil if the price of oil was would even be that high because if America was back to being energy independent well, that'd mean millions of barrels of oil would have to be produced, meaning the cost per barrel would have to come down as a result of the extra supply. 
And America could easily get back onto the list of, you know, net exporters if we let the oil companies drill on the federal lands that they used to drill on, if we gave them their leases back. Uh, This is land that they no longer have access to, and therefore they can't drill. They don't have the leases. But here's the thing. The drill wells are still there. They had to make them in order to get the oil from these lands. So even though they're not able to use the land, the drill wells are still there. They can still be used if we let the companies use them. So we already have all the stuff in place that we had when we were energy independent and just forced the companies to stop using them. But that equipment is still there. So you have all that untapped energy extraction potential. Like nothing new has to be built. It's already there. But because they don't have the leases to drill on the federal land, they can't. So now we have to sit here with $5 a gallon in Illinois and God help you if you're living in California. I'll just... (laughs) But goodness. Goodness. Ugh. It's despicable. But what isn't despicable is India making moves for its industrialization. India. They've been they've been doing a lot recently. They've been doing a hell of a lot recently. And now, after letting a little bit of it pile up, I can sort of take a step back and analyze it. Or at least analyze what we have already. And from what I can see, India is making a really serious go at industrialization, like full-scale industrialization, like what you saw in the U.S., in not just the U.S., but in most European countries in the late 1800s and early 1900s, you know, back before we decided not having a manufacturing base was a good idea. So I guess today you can look more to Japan or China, where that's the level that we're talking in terms of in the attempt, at least, for industrialization. India's making moves. They've been very active. And they've been making deals with Germany, Italy, Britain, America, and I believe Japan as well. And the reason I bring up the industrialization part is because the nature of these deals that they make, because these are mainly deals regarding industrial technology sharing and funding to start up industries and build up factories, like... Everything you'd want to have if you were trying to get an industrial revolution uh, off the ground in India. And that seems to be exactly what India is going for. Uh, there was major protests last year uh, where that resulted in a massive march on the capital uh, because they were privatizing land. And the farmers were upset by this. So naturally, when you have land reforms, the people who were struggling to get by as was and suddenly found themselves in a worse position are going to be upset. People who had power, who are now with less power, are going to be upset. And those are the early stages of industrialization, at least uh, the industrialization post-1900, where you have models to go off of as a... Because in the 1800s, when the Industrial Revolution first happened, you, you, there were no models. You just, either you were industrializing or you weren't. And, you know, you just sort of went up, went by ear. Uh, 
But ever since World War II, industrial attempts, industrialization attempts came with specific, you know, templates, templates. You start with the land reform, then you start grabbing selective industries to plop down in your country. And from there, you just continue expanding until you're able to do it uh, yourself, until you're able to fund and continue growing industry by yourself without the need for foreign capital, which is what China did, which is what South Korea and Japan did. Well, not actually, no, not no, Japan did it. Japan did it, but they did earlier than everyone in Asia. They did it in the 1800s. They were a major industrialized power by the 1940s, certainly. Nothing else in Asia compared to them. But you start with the land reform, then you get to selective industries, you plop them down, and you grow them to massive size, and then you keep going. You just use that as a snowball. And that's what it looks like India is doing here, although mm, I can take a guess at what tech uh, industries they're you know building up, uh, like service, but that's not quite industrial though. So it'll be interesting to see which specific industries like production, manufacturing, what, what specific industries like those that they use for this process. Or if they try to go for a blanket approach and do their own thing. But it's been very interesting to, you know, look back on and watch. And it certainly makes it seem to me that India has officially awoken and is now officially pursuing an outward-looking policy. They were inward-looking for a very long time. But now, they're looking outward. And they're taking advantage of the opportunities around them, mainly economic, because uh, they had military deals. They have a 10-year pact with Japan. It's nine years, uh, eight, eight and a half now. <laughs> But it's there. They have a military pact with Japan. They have military cooperation agreements with Vietnam. Uh, but they were lagging in the economy. And so now they're putting their efforts towards the economy. And that will ultimately benefit their military more than anything else. Because that's how it goes. If you have a strong economy, you can field a, either a bigger or a better military. And if your economy is so good... You can feel a bigger and better military at the same time. That's how industrialized Europe found itself with multi-million man armies in 1914, where before that, a, a battle uh, that totaled 100,000 men was something you wouldn't see since Napoleon. Like, when you'd have multiple countries bringing troops to a location to do battle, and then you'd have upwards of 100,000 men. And even then, it was rare, and towards the very end of the Napoleonic Wars, and you'd see stuff like that. Because up to that point, you'd see a couple tens of thousands. Oh my goodness, his army is 30,000 men. Whoa, a, a battle of 50,000 men? Oh, oh goodness, that battle between... 1,000 and the other 3,000 men really made a big difference and turned the tide of the war. But with industrialization, you had the wealth and you had the productive capacity to field way bigger armies because with, that with the industry and the innovations that came with it in terms of prolonging human life, you could have bigger populations. So you have more people, you can put more people in the field, 
you can clothe them, you can pay for them, and all that. And that's just one of the things that industrialization can do for you. That's the military aspect. So if you want a military edge, it's the economy that you have to focus on, specifically industry. And India is doing that. And given my belief that they're going to be uh, in geostrategic rivalry, if that's the best term. I call it a cold war before, but I'm not entirely sure if that'll be accurate, you know, looking at it as it is now. Although that is my long-term prediction that it, the real cold war is going to be between China and India. But in the short term, you're talking rivalry and India is the emerging power here. China is still rising. But India's coming from a lower starting point, so the growth is going to be bigger in the numbers, in relative terms. But they're making all these deals, making all these deals, and all of them, all of them concern industry. They're all concerning industry. So, my view is that they're trying to go for an industrialization scheme. And it, it's only a start, though. And it will be... You know, if we're all being realistic here, as hopeful and as nice as this story is, you know, c compared to the doom and gloom that I usually talk about, it's going to be a very long time before Indian industrial output even becomes comparable to that of already industrialized countries, let alone China, the most industrialized country of the world, the, the workshop of the world. But it's a very good start, all right? It's a very good start, and if they can keep on this path for long enough then India will achieve, eventually, the critical mass it needs to fund and supply its own industrialization by itself without the need for foreign capital. And that's the, the sort of, uh, that's the inversion point where, well, not the inversion, the inflection point where you stop being dependent on countries who are wealthier than you and you start to become the wealthy country that other countries are dependent on. And that's ultimately the reward that you get from industrialization. It's a big risk-reward thing, especially when you go from a majority agrarian economy like India is today. And like China and most of East and Southeast Asia was in the 1800s and early 1900s. Just like how Europe was in the early 1800s before the Industrial Revolution hit them. Hell, just like America was. Even in 1860, we had the North industrialized and the South lagging behind. And you had a whole... The, the clash, the broader clash, the struggle between the two ways of life, the industrial versus the rural, you know, that type of... The industrial versus the agrarian, the urban versus rural, those struggles that played themselves out in a much more... Uh, peaceful manner in everywhere else in the world you had a whole civil war in america that really encapsulated that our civil war was fought over slavery but you you got that same struggle mixed in there as well so there there's a great risk when it, you come to industrialization uh again those farmers that protested and marched on the capital you're going to see more of that as india continues it's attempt at becoming a wealthy country. But the reward, the reward is going to be something beyond what we can even fathom right now. We think of China as the workshop of the world. Well, China's about to get smacked in the face by demographics. 
India is not. India, as they're doing this, may be able to pick up a good bit of the slack that's going to come off of China due to them lacking and eventually having a shrinking work pop working ugh, a shrinking workforce. Now, I think that when that reality hits China in the face, you're going to see the opposite of the one-child policy. You're going to see the five-child policy. <laughs> uh, and they're already on track to doing something like that. They just haven't made it mandatory. They have the three-child policy where you're allowed to have three kids, but they haven't, they haven't gotten as brutal with the three and probably eventually four and five-child policies as they were with the enforcement of the one-child policy where they, they beat your ass. <laughs> If you had more kids than one and they stole them and they get they did forced abortions and whatnot, they haven't gotten to that level of brutality yet, but when they realize that their civilization is in danger, or if they come to view it as being in danger, which I think they will, they're proud of their 5,000 years of history, I don't think they want to be the generations to fuck that up, so I'm pretty sure we're going to see the five-child policy. And when we see the five-child policy enacted and enforced with the same level of brutality as the one-child policy, we'll know that China's demographic recovery has officially begun, or at the very least, we'll know it's definitely going to succeed. And we'll be talking about demographic recoveries later on this episode as well. But China's going to go through its own internal struggles. India can pick up the slack in terms of industrial output. Because it's doing the right things that it needs to do now to set itself up for that. And who doesn't want to see a wealthy India? Uh, well, specifically, who in India doesn't want to see a wealthy India? Um, it would definitely balance the power in Asia if India is strong and wealthy just like China is. If anything, we might see an inversion where instead of China being the leading dominant power in Asia... You see a rising India, and they become the force that everyone else is afraid of instead of China. But just like China, they want to work with it economically and don't want to work with it militarily. India could become an even bigger Goliath than China is today. And that'll be something to think about, and I'm pretty sure all the people who want us to get into Cold War 2.0 with China will find an excuse as to why we have to do the same with India, who is quite frankly, even farther away from us than China is, and harder to get to. Uh, that, that's a whole other thing. Uh, I'll save the, the isolationist rants for another episode. But, um, yeah, I think that's the path that India's on. And I'm pretty sure the countries that I mentioned earlier, Germany, Italy, Britain, America, Japan, uh, they'll willingly do this, like, Especially the Western countries, because what it seems like is everyone's trying to pressure India to be on their side. And by everyone, I mean Europe and America, because Russia's not doing this. China's not doing this. Um, it's just us pressuring, trying to pressure India to be on our side, uh, both f for the war in Ukraine, you know, to s support Ukraine and condemn Putin and Russia. And there was a very funny interview that happened regarding the condemn Putin thing. I don't, I don't know the name of it, but I saw it and it was very funny. But um, 
you have Western countries pressuring India to do that. And then you also have them trying to pressure India into taking sides with us against China in the, you know, the great geopolitical struggle that they've decided to get us into with China. Uh, the struggle that they believe is going to be Cold War 2.0, but simultaneously they, they bet the winner of the 21st century on who controls Taiwan. Uh, now, never mind that Taiwan controls Taiwan and we don't. Uh, so if China doesn't invade, then does that make Taiwan the winner of the 21st century? Who knows? Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, China's going to have that. So when China does take Taiwan, is Cold War 2.0 dead in the water? I'd hope so. I'd hope so. But part of me feels like I should know better. But another part of me wants to hope and believe. But uh, that, that's that's India. That there's this pressure being put on India to side with us in these things. But India increasingly seems like they're gonna go their own way, and good on them. Good on them. It'll be interesting to see what way that takes them. But if it brings them industrialization and makes them an equal to China, as they historically have been, then great for India. And that will be very entertaining to watch, uh, especially as we watch the shift in power dynamics between India and China as they do this. Uh, and hopefully it, hopefully we don't get that Thucydides trap type thing that people keep bugging me about <laughs> with America and China, where oh, China is the rising power, so that autumn, and America is the, the ruling power, the, the current power, so that automatically means that we have to go start some shit with China to have a war. And I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But people want to do these things, you know. Like, honestly, would there be war with China and America if we didn't bet so much on defending Taiwan? If we didn't make it our shtick to defend Taiwan, what are the chances of war between the United States and China? What are the chances? What, 5%? I'll take that. I'll take that. I, I don't need Taiwan. <laughs> I don't need Taiwan. I need industry here. I need chips made here. And lo a lovely company called Intel is going to give that to me in a couple years' time, and hopefully they expand rapidly. But honestly... Uh, I know I harp on Taiwan a whole lot, and I'm pretty sure anyone listening who is Taiwanese really doesn't appreciate me doing that. But serious question. What are the chances of war between the U.S. and China if we don't defend Taiwan? What are the chances of war between us and China? Because if we're not in there, then we're not going to be the ones getting shot at. And what then? Because there's a whole lot of fear-mongering. A whole lot of fear mongering. Uh, did, did they just cross another thousand miles to get to Guam? Like, oh, are they gonna go two thousand and something miles to get to Australia? Like, like what happens then? How does this translate to China wins the twenty first century? Does the Cold War keep going or is it over? Like, serious questions. Uh, now, naturally. Because these are serious questions, none of the people perpetuating these uh, artificial problems have an answer to that or have even thought about those questions. 
but I have, and you know, I'll just propose them to you in this little podcast of mine, and then we'll then we'll move on to the United States since we're kind of talking about them. Uh, on a, I'll say positive thing, although I'm pretty sure a, a very large swath of my country views it as a negative thing, and I guess that's fair. I mean, everyone's entitled to their opinion, and as I like to say, you have a right to be wrong. <laughs> But we're going to talk a little bit about abortion in America because this has geopolitical consequences. Uh, and I feel like uh, talking about it. I feel like talking about it. But it, it does. It does. It has geopolitical consequences. These are long-term, but they, it, they're there. So let's get into it. Because last week, there was a leak of a draft Supreme Court decision. And it's a draft because it hasn't been finalized yet. It was a leak of a draft Supreme Court decision that was later confirmed that the draft decision was overturning the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. And that whipped the entire country up into a massive tizzy. You had protests and immediately you had riots as well. Uh, so naturally we... we Condone the protest and condemn the the riots as we should be, but right out the gate, right out the gate here, you know, it should be known that the draft decision, as as it, it still hasn't been finalized yet, so this could change, but the draft decision does not make abortion illegal, like many currently protesting and writing and ranting on the internet like myself, uh, like they believe it does. It doesn't. Uh... I'll just leave it at that. I was going to say something, but for some reason, I can't remember what I was going to say on that note. But I'll just leave it at that. It, it hasn't abolished abortion. It's still technically legal. What it's done instead is that it, it makes the legality of abortion a state-by-state -state matter rather than a federal one-size-fits-all matter. So really what it's saying is each state can determine whether it's legal or not, and that it's not within the federal government's power to do this. Like, it's supposed to be a state-to-state -state decision. The federal government doesn't have the authority to do a national thing like this. At least not without enacting a, an actual law, you know. Because it, it wasn't a law. It, wasn't, it was a thing, and people debated on whether or not it was ethical or illegal to do. Roe v. Wade sort of enshrined the ability to have abortions in America for a while. But there was never quite the law. Because it was a federal thing. Because it went up to the Supreme Court. But there was no federal law that specifically said that, yes, this is, a, this is not illegal. And so then this is just me sort of going off of judging the results of this ruling based off of what's gone on. And so, because it wasn't federal, you can't enforce it as though it was federal, so they've deferred it down to the states. And part of the uproar is upset, is from people being upset at that as well, but mainly it's people who think that abortion has been straight out abolished, and it hasn't been, it hasn't been. So, where does that leave us? 
Well, personally, I ultimately think this will make everyone a lot happier in the long run. As people who don't like abortion will have states where it's illegal. And they'll probably go to those states. And people who do want to have abortions, well, they'll also have states where it is legal. And if it ultimately ends up being illegal nationwide, well, then that's just the tide shifting, I guess. So, and that'll be an interesting thing to watch out for now, since we have the the difference now. Now we get to observe which states are going to go for the illegal route, which states are going to go for the legalization route. And we get to observe how that changes over time. But that's another thing. Uh, and that has everything to do with demographics as well. So... Again, people who want it to be illegal will have states where it's illegal. People who want it to be legal will have states where it's legal. So everyone get, can have what they want at the same time simply by making it a not federal issue. And then you don't piss off half the country with whatever decision you make. Because half the country wants abortion gone. Like, abolished. And they have had to live with it being legal, uh, or at least enforced as though it was legal nationwide so to make it illegal nationwide would really just do the same thing but in the opposite direction and you'd have one half happy and the other half upset well really a third happy and a third upset because you know a third are republicans a third are democrats and then the other third are independents so when we say half and half, it's really you know, one third and one third, and then the other third is relatively neutral. So you'd upset one part and then make happy the other part, whichever way you go, if you have it as a federal thing. But by putting it down to the states, people can have their state governments decide. And that'll ultimately be not only make people happier, but it'll be healthier for our society for us to bring some power back away from the federal government. And this is the thing that I stand with, because everyone focuses so heavily on the national elections, and then they get upset when your federal-level representatives can't represent you specifically. Well, they can do a lot, a lot more than they do when it comes to representing people, but ultimately, what do you, want, what do you expect them to do? They're representing millions of people each, Millions of people each, or at the very least, hundreds of thousands, or a million a person. So, there's no way they're going to be able to represent you, especially if you're a small locale. And so for them to have as much power as we've allowed them to have, uh, well, they, they can't use it properly. They can't wield it properly in a way that doesn't just go straight for the infringement of your rights. And it, what it also does is it creates a very unhealthy atmosphere. Every time there's an election, it's the biggest election of our lives. It's the most important election. And I guess judging by the results of Biden's policies, maybe maybe the old commander-in-chief wasn't wrong about that one. But every election is the most important election of our time? Well, that's just objectively wrong. There's no way. Yeah. Everything would have to be getting progressively worse. <laughs> or you'd have to have the end of the world every time there was an election. And if you didn't vote for the right guy, the end of the world was going to happen. That's very unhealthy. You know, it's It incentivizes the demonization of the other side. 
when you have all that power vested in the federal government, the national government, when instead you can put it down to the states. And so then every issue is an existential. Oh, if, if we don't get everything we want, then they'll get everything they want. And it's, well, if we just take the power away from the federal government, well, then none of you can get everything you want enforced onto anyone else. But you can have your states, and that's going to be much healthier for people. If people, when they want something, they turn to their state government instead of to the federal government for everything, you, the power struggle over who gets Washington every two years, every, every four years. Who, who's going to do this, this, this with the Supreme Court? Who's going to do this? Oh, I'm, I'm going to, every, every president running and promising every, a million things on a stick. You de-incentivize that, and you incentivize state power. And the states can represent you a hell of a lot better than the federal government can. And then we can really go back to being a republic as well. Because that's how America's supposed to function. That's why the states are semi-autonomous in the first place. So my belief is that this decision is going to be a good one just on that alone. Now... With regards to abortion itself, I myself fall into the pro-life side of this, as I like to be consistent with the foundation of values of America. I'm a nationalist, after all. Uh, and those values, which were laid out to us in a Declaration of Independence, we all know them very well. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But when I think about it, and I took the time to think about where would I stand, because I've heard the better arguments of both sides. You know, you can't just kill something and then you the government shouldn't have the right to force you to do something with your body and they're right they're both right but when i think about it and i think about i defer to the foundation of values of america because this is america so who are we as a nation which argument is consistent with our foundational value because i think we've strayed far enough away from those foundational values as is so with life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness in mind, which part of this is most consistent with that? And I think it's the pro-life side. Because you can't have liberty or the pursuit of happiness if you don't have life. If you don't have life, you can't have either. And I've heard the my body, my choice argument. A lot of people dismiss it. But it's a valid one, just not at the point where you're pregnant. It's a valid argument not after you've gotten pregnant. It's better suited for deciding whether or not to have sex. Because what is sex other than a... It's designed by nature for you to get pregnant if you're a woman. That's what sex is designed by nature to do. So when you engage in sex, you immediately assume the risk of getting pregnant because that's what the act is designed to do. It feels real good. But that's the intended outcome of having sex, even if that's not your intended outcome. That's, that's what sex is meant to do. So, if you want to make the argument, my body, my choice, well, if you chose to have sex, you've essentially assumed the risk that I might get pregnant. You know, whether you did that deliberately or not, that's what the action does. So if you're going to talk about your body of choice, it has to be before you get pregnant. It, it has to start in the bedroom when you make the decision of whether or not to have sex. 
Because that is ultimately the decision of whether or not to get pregnant. If you don't have sex, you don't get pregnant. And it's, it's as simple as that. And if you do have sex, you're probably going to get pregnant. And even if you use contraception, there's still the chance that you still get pregnant anyway. And then one slips through. So that's why I think that argument is better suited. Uh, but going back to the pro-life part of this, the baby ultimately has the same rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as the mother, which is why I don't agree with the my body, my choice. Because yes, you could choose over your body, but once you're pregnant, and this is why that decision has to be made before you have sex, my body, my choice, your choice has to be made before you have sex. Because once you're pregnant, now it's not just your body. It's your body and the baby's body. And if we're going to protect anybody in this society, if the government is going to protect anybody, certainly it has to be the kids, even the unborn. And we do. We, have, we already have laws like pregnant women can't smoke, pregnant women can't drink. We have laws like that. So to have laws like those where we deliberately prioritize the life of the unborn child, over the freedom of the mother, because that's what it is when you break it down, when you have laws like that, it doesn't make sense. It, it's very inconsistent to then go and say, yes, we're going to allow the mother to kill the baby that we have these laws in place to protect because we want the mother to have freedom even though we have these laws curtailing the freedom of the mother so that the baby can live, um, at least until it's born. It's... You have you run into an inconsistency. Those two cannot coexist and be consistent with one another just by the nature of either you're killing the baby or you're not killing the baby. Some would argue it's a woman's choice and that men shouldn't butt in. But even there, a woman can't get pregnant by them by herself. It takes a man to do that to do have sex with a woman for them to get pregnant. And ultimately babies have more than just a mother, they have a father too. And then there are those who dismiss unborn babies as bundles of cells. Uh, but if the cure, and I thought about that too. thought about that too. Where, where does life begin? Some say con at conception. Others say when you could see that it's a human. And But what I've come to is that if the Curiosity or the Discovery rovers found a bundle of cells like that on Mars, we'd all have headlines within the next hour talking about having found life on Mars. So it's clearly life. Shoot, if bacteria is life, then certainly a fertilized egg is going to be life. Especially given that the fertilized egg grows into a human being. So the value of human life that we add on top of life is also applicable there. And so that's, that's the way I see it. That's the way I see it. That's why I stand on this side where I do... And so there's there's my bias just laid out to you on this issue. Um, but given that that's my bias, I have also seen something that's probably going to have even bigger consequences that's going to come out of this. And that's the demographic recovery of America. It's officially begun. It, it hit me the second I really thought about what this meant you know, once I got past the fact that it, abortion wasn't straight up abolished, it was just 
this state-to-state map. Well, okay. Well, that partially abolishes it because there's going to be plenty of states who are going to straight up make it illegal. So what happens then? Well, there were over 620,000 abortions last year. That number has steadily been declining for decades now. Uh, In the 1970s, it was over a million. And I'm like, whoa, baby, over a million. But it's been it's been declining for a while now. It's it was a uh, last year. What was this? Twenty nineteen. I forget if this was twenty twenty or twenty nineteen. But there were over six hundred and twenty thousand abortions. And I'll just say last year, and maybe I'll, because the number declines. The decline is small enough to where I, it'll probably still r- roughly accurate for me to say this if it was la- last year or even twenty nineteen. But that's the number. And while we can't reasonably count every single one of those 260,000 abortions uh, as new births now, uh, given the semi-illegal status of abortion now, it it wouldn't make sense, because if you live in a state that makes it illegal, and you're probably just not going to have the baby. <laughs> you're probably just not going to get pregnant. And the, the baby won't be conceived, so you're going to see a drop in those. But that also leaves babies that will be born because they can't be aborted. And on that note, we're still talking hundreds of thousands of babies that will be born, which will eventually be, well, not eventually, it probably already is, quite quite frankly, once... Actually, no, not is, but in the very near future, because apparently they're set to make their decision and announce it in June. When June comes around and they make this decision, if it is roughly the same as what it is right now, where it's just making abortion a state decision, not a federal decision. We're going to see hundreds of thousands of babies that would have been aborted now being born. And that will officially begin America's demographic recovery and in time accelerate it as well. Because, and I say accelerate as well, because the states that are most likely to make abortion illegal are also the homes to the demographic in the United States that generally have more kids to begin with. All right, so you're talking a demographic that already has more kids. And in these states, where they are the dominant and the majority forces, they're going to ban it. And because red states and blue states don't mean 100% of the people there are Republican or 100% of the people there are Democrat, I can speak from experience living in Illinois. Not everyone up here is a Democrat, or at the very least, not in their views. <laughs> oh boy. But in those states, the Democrat contingents within them won't be having abortions because it's going to be made illegal. So within the states where abortion is made illegal, even the people who would like to have an abortion are going to be having babies. People who would have had an abortion in these states are going to be having babies. And that's going to mean higher fertility rates 
higher fertility rates, higher birth, uh, higher, uh, more children. You're going to have more children. I was looking for a word, but we're going to have more children. And what that's going to do in time is it's going to kickstart a demographic recovery. Because you have people in these states where it's going to be made illegal. Like there, there are already like 18 states that have laws ready to go to make this shit illegal the second they get the chance. So in those 18 states, and there may or may not be more, given how many legislatures are controlled by Republicans in, uh, ever since the 2020 elections, we could be seeing even more than those 18 states making abortion illegal. And that's going to apply to the pro-choice contingents who live in those states. Even they will be having babies that cannot be aborted. So it's not just the conservatives slash Republicans who already have more kids in general, but even the liberals slash Democrats who live in those states are going to be forced to have the kid uh, that they conceive. They won't be able to abort the kid. So say what you will about the social consequences of this in, in the future. The demographic recovery is here. It's here. And it'll be very interesting to see uh, what what the fertility rates in America become as a result of this. Because we still have, even in June when the decision is finalized, there's still six months. And then there's going to be like a little bit of wait time before we see uh, the actual data. Because that's how it is. When a, a year closes out, you need a little bit of time to gather up the numbers. That's why when I look for statistics, I go for not the year prior I go to the year before last year, so because that's already counted and accounted for. But we're gonna see hundreds of thousands of babies that won't be aborted, which means they're gonna live. And then eventually those kids will grow up and they will have kids that they won't be able to abort. It's gonna be a snowball effect. Or at the very least, that's what I think it's gonna be. And the snowball is luckily. In terms, you know, and speaking purely on demographics, luckily that snowball is going to kick in very quickly just because, you know, it only takes nine months to have a baby. So right off the bat, we're going to see if this gives us a bump in the number of baby children born in the United States, babies, children, or if people just stop having kids in response to this. So this can actually go the exact opposite way of what I think it's going to go uh, in the short term, at the very least. But it, the demographic recovery of America, I believe, has officially almost begun because the, the decision has to be finalized yet. It's still a draft. And I have to stress that because it could change. We still have a whole month to go. But I think this is going to be a good move for America, specifically regarding demographics and regarding the foundation of values of America. Uh, but at the very least, it's a it's a state-to-state -state decision, so my views, I can almost guarantee you, won't be carried out in Illinois, but they'll be carried out elsewhere. And that's enough. You know, that's enough. So long as we're not busy fighting each other over something that really is none of each other's businesses, 
if we can just enforce it at the state level. We don't need to fight the federal level over this. The federal government shouldn't be arguing over whether or not we're going to be having babies. They should be talking about new trade deals, you know, stuff like that. Not, oh, how much money are we going to shell out to Ukraine? And ugh, That's a whole other issue. But I've told you where I stand. I told you what I think is going to happen on when this decision comes out, if it's the same as what it is now. And only time will tell. And that's always the painful part of geopolitics. When you're, well, the painful part, ugh, the painful part of current events is you can look at past geopolitics and just be enthralled and entertained at the absolute movie going on. But in the mo in the heat of the moment, we have to sit and wait and be patient and uh, check our sources and, <laughs> and verify claims. Uh, we have to do work. Oh well, but. It'll be interesting to see where all these things go. America's demographic recovery, Indian industrialization. Uh, what happens to Greece and Turkey with all this, uh, all that economic downturn they're looking at? Uh, I see a whole lot of red. Maybe they'll have a communist revolution. Who knows? Only <laughs> but if there's one thing we do know, it's that ah, that is all I've got for you today. And I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. America is changing. And hopefully for the better. But only... We'll just have to wait and see. But we will have fun watching those changes together. I've been your host, Haishan Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, until we meet again next Monday, Servus.